We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land in which we record this podcast today, the Arakwal people of the Bunjalong Nation, and pay our respects to Elders past and present. Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hello, Jade. Hello, Sophie and everybody listening. Welcome back to us. Welcome back to (laughs) us. We hope you missed us. We missed being here. If you hear any screeching, Pearl is just on my lap for this intro and she's just really found her vocal cords. So maybe turn us down a bit (laughs) because we don't want to blow off any speakers, but we are so pumped to be back. We are. Look, we are going to say that we were supposed to have a proper two-week break. It didn't really happen. I think we both work during that. We were very, very busy with kids, but we're going to share with you basically very quickly because this episode is quite long, what we did in the two weeks off. Soph, what did you do? Yeah. So my two week break, it was jam packed, but it was great. In that space, I have dealt with a child with an ear infection, a child with giardia, a separate child. <laughs> You're looking at me, did I not tell you about the giardia? No. A separate child with gastro, the deepest of sleep deprivation I have ever experienced, an egg allergy, and uh, my first flights solo with the three kids. So I'll go in depth with each thing, but we're going to do a six-month update on Pearl soon. So I'll really focus mm. on those things then. Please do. But egg allergy, the update is we tried Pearl on egg for the first time and she has an allergy. Poppy also had one and she grew out of it by the time she was two years of age. So I'm hoping that Pearl will be the same. But it's obviously pretty scary. It was like a yeah. Monday morning. I just thought, oh, I'll give her some of the egg off my plate. Gave her the yolk because I know that, you know, it's more common for them to be allergic to the egg white rather than the yolk, which was the case with Poppy. Anyway, skin flared up straight away. You sent me a photo. I thought she had the measles. Yeah, it wasn't, thank goodness. But yeah, had to basically just do contact naps all day just to watch her. I'm waiting on a GP appointment and then I'm going to get a referral to an allergist just to see if we're going to reintroduce it or just wait it out. And it's actually inspired me. I would love to do an episode all on allergies. So we're working on that. So that was the first thing. And then, oh, just before that allergy she had her first temperature and got diagnosed with an ear infection so we'd been dealing with that but she got over that very quickly which was great yeah and then one of my children for about a week had been complaining just kind of sporadically that she had a sore tummy 
And it was one of those things that I was like, oh, she's just trying to get out of daycare. Yeah. Like, and then I was like, oh, her poos do look like a little bit different. And then Nick kind of did the empty threat that he's like, okay, well, if your tummy's sore again today and you don't want to go to daycare, then we're going to have to take you to the doctors. <laughs> and she goes, I want you guys to take me to the doctors. <laughs> and we were like, oh, my goodness, we are the worst parents. So no, we not. went and I thought, oh, maybe she's got a little bit of a UTI or something she did a wee there and it didn't show that much and then of course we got sent home with the little oh my god uh, poo sample yeah. tub that unfortunately I was breastfeeding Pearl when she had to do her next poo so <laughs> Nick just to. had to do it anyway once I got to Melbourne I got a call from the GP saying yeah she's got Giardia so whether she got it when we're in Fiji or in Bali right. anyway it's just a really quick course of antibiotics and she's feeling fine now but then completely separately that night one of my other children I'm trying to be anonymous here (laughs) woke up in the middle of the night luckily we're in Melbourne so my mum had to do all the bedding vomited all throughout a bed moved her to another bed vomited all throughout this bed I was in Melbourne without Nick but thank goodness I had my mum anyway that lasted a couple of days and plus sleep deprivation and then so the sleep deprivation part of things is when we were in Melbourne Pearl like she's always been a shocking sleeper she'd got to the point where she was waking up every kind of hour or two but when we went to Melbourne honestly she changed to every 20 to 40 minutes oh my gosh and it was honestly the most tired I've ever been I just got to the point where I was like, I don't know how I can keep going on with sleep like this. And I've never had sleep unicorns before. The other two weren't the type that are like eight weeks they were sleeping through or anything. So I thought I was like, I know what lack of sleep is. I know what sleep deprivation is. Anyway, I did not. And I was just in this really... I don't know, I I said it on Instagram and so many people related to it, so I hope that people on here relate to it too. It's this awful like juxtaposition of and I think it's especially because she's my last baby of not wanting to wish the time away but being so desperate for them to grow up and sleep at the same time and it's really sad because she's sitting in front of me and I'm like oh my god she's already nearly six months how did we get here already but also I can't do this baby thing anymore. And it makes me really, really emotional. And look, sleep has improved. We've made some teeny tiny changes and I feel... I feel scared to say them out loud because we all know that the universe, the minute you mention Mm, sleep's been any better, it turns around. Look, she's still waking three or so times a night, but in terms of the difference that has made has been massive. Like I feel like my brain, even when I tried not to focus on sleep, all my brain could think about was sleep and what is sleep going to be like tonight and, oh, have her naps been good or not and what's that yeah. going to mean? Oh, am I going to get time for a nap today so that I can go in tonight like ready for battle? And that's really what it felt like. And we've come home, we've made tiny changes and I never want people to see this as advice because all bubs are different. And if someone had said to me, these simple changes will make a huge difference, 
I wouldn't have believed them because she was just like contact napping, waking up, constantly being fed to sleep. And we've literally all we've done is she's in a cot. I think she'd outgrown the bassinet. She's a big baby. So I think that bumping in to the sides of the bassinet was really waking her. I'd started co-sleeping with her because I was like, I'm willing to Mm. give co-sleeping a go if it means I get more sleep, but it hadn't improved sleep at all. So she's in her own cot now. She's in her own room. The room she's in now because... Is soundproof, so you can't hear her. <laughs> <laughs> I wear noise cancelling headphones. No, I don't. Yeah, it's like she really likes her own space. That made a huge difference. She's been letting us like put her down for naps awake a bit and just patting her on the bum. Anyway, if I had have heard this a week ago, I wouldn't have believed it. We haven't had to do any crying or anything at this point, but it has just made a really big difference for us as a family. I don't even know what you'd call it. Like I I don't even think it's sleep training because there hasn't really been much training. I don't know if, I don't even know. Sleep changing. Sleep changing, (laughs) but I'll keep you updated. But yeah, my first flight on my own with the three kids went really well. It was good that it was just to Melbourne. Like I'm not about to fly to Europe with the three of them. And yeah, that's me. How's your two weeks been? <laughs> well, look, I'm going to say that I got more sleep than you. So That's a given. Sorry, not sorry. Yeah, we'll obviously get into Pearl's six-month, I was going to say regression, <laughs> but we'll get into that um, so we can delve into those topics a little bit more because they are, they're, they're brutal and I think that you are definitely not alone in all of that. Like yeah. anyone that has a sleeping unicorn, please mm. do not let us know because we don't care. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, good on you. Yeah, good I on was going to say, because I, I, I feel like people constantly ask, how is it with three? Yes. Like Because I think there's that saying that one is one, two is two and three three is 1,000. And when she was first born, I was kind of like, oh, three's three. Like it's a whole extra human. Like it's not just like throwing one on the pile. Like it's a whole extra human. It is a lot, but three is three. Anyway, I think I've come to the conclusion that when everyone's well, three is three. But rarely is everyone well. It just seems to be, I think with three, it just feels very much one thing after another. See, for me, I feel like three is never three because I don't look at it in terms of wellness. I look at it in terms of how people and how everyone is in terms of their behaviour and nobody anyone in the oh, house, well, including me, your first mistake. <laughs> is, there's no one is ever like, like there might be one patch where you're like, oh, everyone is playing well, watching something and I can sit for two seconds. Other than that, it's just complete chaos. It's good chaos. Like, no, I love it. Yeah. And I don't regret it. Like I love three and there's something so special about Pearl. This age but is a lot. Is it? I think this is where I kind of broke around that four-month mark where I was like, what is happening? And Maybe it's down to illnesses and bugs. I don't know what it is, but we also travelled like we yeah. went to the snow and I remember Mia had gastro and even one child and then a baby, it's like what's going on? And travelling, you're not in your own routine. It just makes everything so much harder. I know. Thank you so much to- Thank you so much to all the helpful people on Instagram who wrote in saying maybe if you stopped travelling so much and she got into some normality, she might sleep for you. I know. That was a rude message, wasn't it? 
That was rude and that is not fabulous. But moving on to me, I... Oh, no, we don't care. Okay, bye. Uh, (laughs) No, I went camping for the first half of the school holidays and I have a bit of a parenting hack. Oh, we love them. Mum hack. So what I've worked out is don't try and be a hero and set up the tent and everything yourself. Let that go. Pretend that you don't really know how to do it and go and do something less productive like go take your kids to the toilet or go down to the beach or pretend you're on the phone, but make sure you're in Wi-Fi because if they find out you don't have reception, then they kind of know you're lying. But if you're actually going to do something and be busy away, you come back half an hour to 40 minutes later and everything's set up and you don't have to have that argument that you're going to have camping and you just don't have to worry about it. So look, the but that's a win-win camp, win for everyone because Harry was probably stoked that you all just left him the F alone. Totally. And yeah. the more we camp, the more I'm working out to do less and him to do more. So this is a really good journey mm. to be on. But in that time, Mia was coming down with something. She didn't feel 100%. She, unfortunately, on and off, spent two weeks of holidays unwell. So, yeah, that was not a good thing for her. However, I went away to Sydney with my other husband husband that is Sophie's and unfortunately I can't say anything about it because contract contractually I cannot right now but it was such a fun time we had so much fun and we can't wait to share that bit of information with you so basically while I was dealing with the worst sleep deprivation of my life you two were having fun in Sydney yeah we were just laughing and having a ball no it was a terrible time but um (laughs) we managed to see we've seen Barbie I'm sure everyone I haven't seen Barbie well I won't I won't say much to the people who haven't seen it but I'm going to say that I was pleasantly surprised, really surprised, and I've seen it twice. And the girls, like Billy and Mia, absolutely loved it. They would see it 10, 20 times, they said. And Yumi watched half of it and told mum every five seconds, I'm that Barbie, I'm that Barbie, and she's like, okay. And then her attention span just went down the drain. So I'm thinking of taking Poppy. She's five yep. on a mum-daughter date. Yep. Fine. I think that she will But Goldie, it. who's three, no. No. I no. think leave Goldie, go have your mum and daughter date. and Because I, I think that's been the number one question. Like obviously it's an adult film, but not adult film in the way like adult <laughs> It's PG. Film. So oh, okay. it's PG and it's there's so much colour and things going on. Yes, they might not get the adult jokes here and there, but they will enjoy the colours and for us, I don't know, I got I was actually emotional in parts of it. Right. It's it's an incredible movie. I know that obviously the advertising is there. We're they're very well aware of that, but you gotta say, I commend them. They've done a freaking fabulous job. So mm. we love that. And just to finish off this long intro that we were gonna make short, <laughs> I have now officially finished as a swing mole at the park. Can I have a round of applause? Oh, my goodness. That's it. Explain Yumi, it to the people. Yumi, if this does not make sense to anyone, Yumi all of a sudden can swing herself on the swing. I am no longer, after 10 years needed, 
to swing any of my children anymore. That's a huge milestone. I know my mum said one of the biggest milestones of her <laughs> parenting was when her kids were all old enough when we went on her kids, which is me and my siblings, <laughs> were all old enough when we went on holidays that obviously she still supervised us, but she didn't have to get in the pool with us. I feel like that's similar to the swing. I just feel like I'm happy to go to a park now mm. because I can sit there, have a coffee and just smile and wave. It's no, genius. Yes, you're looking at your phone. You're not smiling and waiting at anyone. Well, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm definitely not pushing a swing. Anyway, that is me for the two-week wrap. Yeah. Now, in today's episode, we are getting oh, into the episode now. Whoa. We're not getting into the episode. I need to just say this because I need to get it off my chest to everyone listening. I just briefly want to speak about man flu. Harry oh. got man flu. We're not going to talk about it too long, but can I just say, and excuse my language, Fuck me. It is the most in my household. Yeah. See, Pearl can't stand even talking about it. It's horrible, Pearly. Anyway. Horrible for them or horrible for you? No. Like today I actually had, and I've been doing really well in in like terms of not raising my voice and learning how to just be quite level. Like you've been empathetic. Mm. I'm always empathetic, but sometimes when things shit me, I just raise my voice and get it out that way. However, today I just had it. I heard all up the hallway, (coughs) I'm like, I've got to to set this straight. I'm like, one, stop coughing like that. I need boundaries. And cover your fucking mouth. Sorry, Pearl. Cover your mouth because when you don't do that, I could get sick and yeah. everyone else could get sick around you. You're not the only one that has been sick. That's one thing. Two, I get that you're unwell, but you are complaining more than anyone else. And you know what he said to me? He said, oh, but no one has no one has had it as bad as this. And I said, that is man flu, babe. You don't ever think that anyone has had it as bad as you. Yeah. We have had it. The it's girls have been we- sick. You're a weak vessel. You're oh, a you're weak a weak as piss. <laughs> Anyway, hopefully not too many men are listening to this. Sorry, not sorry, but I have had a gutful. I'm so happy to be here recording, having a break from him, and hopefully when I come home, he has recovered. Doubtful. Yeah. Now we're going to get yes. into today's episode. This episode is all about Hyperemesis Gravidarum. We spoke to the beautiful Caitlin from Hyperemesis Gravidarum Australia and Yannicka, who's from Big Little Things Store. We all spoke about our experiences with with hyperemesis, what friends, family can do to help, how you can prepare for future HG pregnancies and postpartums. I do want to say a trigger warning. We do talk about termination and suicidal thoughts in this episode, and it could be triggering to some listeners. So yeah, there was actually a lot of information that I didn't even know about. And we are just so grateful that we could have these ladies on to chat about this and hope that other people feel more supported in suffering and dealing with hyperemesis. So we really hope you guys enjoy. Yannicka, Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us on Beyond the Bump today. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and what you guys do? Thank you so much for having us. We're very excited to be here. So I'm Caitlin. I'm the founder of Hyperemesis Australia. We are the only charitable organization that is operating in Australia, focused on Australian sufferers and their families. We like to focus on the full spectrum of pregnancy sickness. So we're not, you know, hyperemesis is in the name, but we're very much for if you have 
you know, not the very severe pointy end of it, but you're still having a really bad time. We want you in the club as well. You're not exclusive. (laughs) Absolutely not. And I am the mum of two beautiful little HGCO survivors. And in my day job, I work in podcasting. So this whole thing is my life. I have too many hats. Yeah, that's me. And Yannicka, what about you? So I'm Yannicka. I'm the owner of Big Little Things and Big Little Gifting. I'm the co-host of our podcast, You, Me and HG. And I am a two-time HG survivor with my two little daughters. And before we get started, is one of you able to tell and share with our audience what HG slash hyperemesis actually is? So HG, hyperemesis gravidarum, is an extreme form of what we call pregnancy sickness, what a lot of people would refer to as morning sickness. So I think the easiest way to kind of explain it is like if you imagine a spectrum you know, on one end you have morning sickness, which is kind of you feel a little bit sick in the morning and maybe you do like a little vomit into a waste paper basket during a big board meeting where you like, no one's supposed to know that you're pregnant and it's this totally like, oh my God, so embarrassing. And then in the middle would be what we call NVP, so nausea and vomiting in pregnancy, which is going to start affecting your life day to day. You're not going to work to do the big board meeting, you're probably stuck on the couch. You're maybe having to think about what you're eating and drinking and triggers and getting more rest and all of those sorts of things. That's where I would say we start to see the bulk of what pregnancy sickness really is. I am pretty confident anybody who's had a pregnancy where they felt sick is probably more in this area. I don't know that morning sickness is a real thing. I've never really spoken to anybody who was like, yeah, I threw up once. Like that just (laughs) doesn't seem to be a thing. And then you kind of move further along the spectrum and that's where you hit HG, which is very severe, very debilitating. It is completely affecting every facet of your life. So nothing is the same as when you weren't pregnant. It's affecting your work. It's affecting your mental health. You're not eating and drinking normally. You're very quickly slipping into dehydration and having to look at, you know, seeking pretty significant like medical intervention to care for yourself. And all of this can last from anywhere for a few weeks in the first trimester right up until birth and beyond. So it's a real mixed bag of things, but I guess HG is nausea and vomiting that has completely taken over your life. I've got goosebumps just remembering back to all those symptoms. Yeah, I mean, four of us chatting right now are all people who have experienced HG multiple times. Yannicka, what was your experience like? Experiences, I should say. Experiences, yeah. My first uh, introduction to HG was in 2018. So I was pregnant with our first and it was pretty early onset, but I had no idea. So I think for the duration of that pregnancy, I finally got diagnosed after, I guess, a lack of understanding from my then current GP. And then I switched because of just no one actually mentioning why I was just so sick, like debilitating. Like I was in retail at the time and I was vomiting in our like office. Like it was like, and I had basically a breakdown being like, I thought I'm, I'm hurting the baby. Like I didn't know what this was. And then I finally got diagnosed at about 14, 15 weeks. And by then I was too far gone and 
yeah, basically I just sort of survived. And I thought that was bad. And then when we finally came out of that and started thinking about growing our family again, I held a lot of trauma through that. But then I thought, okay, let's plan for the worst, hope for the best and go into it with that mindset because nothing could be worse as that experience. (laughs) And unfortunately, that was like my famous last words, I guess, because the second one was horrific. Although I knew that I was like going in there, like I was working with Caitlin and I was very aware and literate with HG, but just nothing can really prepare you for just how bad it is. And the mental toll of also having like my eldest was turning three. So juggling that and just not being present while suffering so badly, like, I mean, it was just at one point, like Caitlin was my go-to person. She was messaging me every day because I was in such a dark hole mentally, very scary as well. And at one point, I just, all these things kept happening. I got pups as well, which I can really relate to with your story, Sophie. I got that really early on. So there was that, which is just when you're scratching your skin off and then vomiting so badly that I then broke ribs from vomiting about 30, what was it, like 32 weeks or something. And I was going into labor basically with these injuries and anemia and like all these other complications that HG does do to your body. It was just horrific. And I was like, this, this is just, I just, it was comical at the end because of just how ridiculous the suffering was. Because when you reach that point of like, right, this is, my everyday, even though I knew what I was getting myself into, it's still just, yeah. So I guess the difference between those two pregnancies for me was that I really focused on my postpartum and I really focused on my recovery because my understanding of HG was that the placenta's birthed and then you're fine. Mm. Everything's great. And it's not, you're depleted. Yeah. And I was so depleted. So my mental health, my physical health just took such a beating by that second time. And I think that was my, like, (laughs) the catalyst of also just being so even more passionate about helping others with this as well. Yeah. You get to the point where you don't even recognize yourself. I remember, you know, vomiting and you're pissing at the same time because your vomiting is so violent. And I got to the point where I was vomiting up blood and the things you just put up with and accept as your normal, because you feel like you don't have any other choice. Once you're on the other side, you look back and you think, why did I put up with that? Or how did I put up with that? And we were joking before we got started that the the background noises that just became so normal in my house, we would have friends pop past and I would be in the bathroom. I'm not a very quiet vomiter. I'm a, my family <laughs> lo- do laugh so? because no, but I'm particularly loud. Like my brothers are sometimes like, are you putting that on? I'm like, I can't help it. It's so violent. And so I would be in the bathroom with people over and I just think you get to the point where you think vomiting is so normal that I couldn't have cared less who heard me doing it. And they would turn to my husband and go, do you need to go in there and do something? Is she okay? And not that Nick didn't care, but he got to the point that it was our normal and he was so Mm. desensitized to it that it was just kind of like, oh, yeah, no, she's fine. Like, well, she's not fine, but this is just our day-to-day life. But even your kids start to get used to it because I had 
two 16 months apart. So I had pretty Mm. much a little baby while I was really sick. And she at the end was like holding my hair back and she was so used to it by that time. It was, it was just a normal reality for us that mum every day will vomit. She'll get up in the middle of the night. She'll, she'll vomit. And that's, that's what life is. Yeah. My kids love role playing mums and that kind of thing. And during that time, if they were role playing mums, they would go and just do a pretend vomit next to yeah. their dollhouse or whatever. And I Mine just thought this should have been normal. And Caitlin, what about you? So, yeah, I mean, I think that there is like a common thread through all HD stories. Like I read hundreds of emails a week and DMs and stuff. And it's so interesting to me, all of the the commonalities because it's so isolating. And when you're in it, you think I'm the only person who has ever felt this Mm. way physically or mentally and really we're all just like stuck in our bathrooms alone going through the same thing so my first baby I had in 2018 as well and it was the same thing I was young I had heard of HG because of Kate Middleton but I never in my wildest dreams thought it was a thing that happened just to normal people and very quickly went from like newlywed European summer holiday, honeymoon to bedridden, living with my parents. My husband is having to be my carer and every day waking up and going like, am I sick enough to go to the hospital today? And Mm. it was just this, like, I just couldn't at all wrap my head around the idea that we were just supposed to deal with it. Like it just... I don't know if I have some kind of insane sense of justice that we're all entitled to or something, but I was just like, no, 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 no. Like, why are we just sitting around accepting that this is a thing that's happening to people and that there are first time mothers who are thinking, well, if I miscarried, would I be mad? Like that was me. Yeah. Or so common. I really want this baby, but also maybe I don't and maybe I should like Mm. research termination or maybe if I just threw myself down the stairs that would be the best way to do it or if I didn't wake up in the morning would it be so terrible and if we're going to talk about there being you know a maternal mental health crisis in this country which is something we should be talking about and suicide is the number one cause of death in mothers within the first 12 months of their child's life like that statistic blows my mind then we need to talk about all the little death by a million cuts that get a person to that place and traumatic pregnancies, traumatic births are a hundred percent it being dismissed and dehumanized and devalued and questioned at every single step of your pregnancy. That was my experience. And I got to the last few weeks of my pregnancy and I just didn't get out of bed and I just cried all the time. And I was just begging anyone who would listen to me for help and no one would give it. And I had this sort of weird, like just pre-birth, like rush of energy, which I think, you know, some of us get. And I sent an email to the hospital that I was delivering in. This is the other thing that I, I'm very lucky to live in a really affluent part of Sydney, like yay, the Shire. We're very like middle-class. Everybody is really well-educated. I come from a middle-class family. I'm white. My parents have worked in public health for four decades. Like I'm very medically literate. I am someone who has all of the privileges and all of the access. And I was still so beaten down by the system. Mm. I wanted to kill myself. And 
like if I had had any one of those privileges removed, how much more difficult it would have been? How much more difficult is it for women who don't look like me, who don't have the education that I have, who don't have a supportive partner or supportive parents, who are already viewed by the system as a problem? You know, First Nations women, queer women, migrant women, you know, are statistically more likely to to be treated violently by this system and the condition that I was left in is like the the gold star patient. So I sent an email to my delivery hospital and I just had this huge bullet point list of these are all the really crap things that your people did to me. And these are all the really terrible things that they said to me. And it's not on. And I was, again, very lucky that the head of women's and children's health at the hospital was a three-time HG survivor. And she just said, you are right. And I have been waiting to have the opportunity to do something about it. And this email is it. And two weeks later, I gave birth. And then from then, basically, it's been setting up the charity because I needed somewhere to put my rage. Like I didn't have. Mm, Yeah. I just couldn't. I was just walking around being like, oh, why are we cool with this? Like, why are we just like letting mothers sit on plastic chairs? You chose to have more children. It's like, Mm. that's not good enough. But you said before, you mentioned Kate Middleton. And it's actually funny for me that you said that because I had my first child in 2013, right? She, I think, was a few months in front or behind me at that stage. Now, no one in my family knew what was going on. You were saying you had no idea what was going on. All of a sudden, a princess comes on TV Mm -hmm. and declares that she has hyperemesis. And my mum turns off the TV and goes, oh, Jade, I actually think that's what you might have. That was the only Mm -hmm. realisation that anyone around me thought you actually aren't a hypochondriac. You could probably have a serious condition. And I felt like being pregnant and being that sick, I didn't know anyone else that was that sick. I must be really, really dramatic. Mm. That's how I felt. And everyone around me, doctors, you know what? It's just really bad morning sickness. And I'm like, it can't be. It can't be because I feel genuinely like, and I'll be honest, I had a termination in between my three children because it was too close to another one. And I cried my eyes out, but I said, I can't support this family carrying Mm. another child with hyperemesis. And I was vomiting 20 times a day at week six. And they said Mm. to me, you can't terminate, even though we know that you don't want the baby until week eight, because you might miscarry. So I had to wait and look after these babies for a solid three weeks until I could have a termination. I'm so glad you shared that, Jade, because... These conversations are really life-saving because, I mean, this is why we want to scream from the rafters about HG because the more people, and I really hope people that haven't suffered are listening and if they hear someone that might be suffering and might have the same kind of symptoms and be like, oh, I heard about this thing called HG, you might want to look into that. That is so helpful and it is literally life-saving. The whole conversation around termination and HG is a really important one as well because it's a decision that is taken away from us because HG is just inescapable. 
and I mean, Caitlin can talk about this, but there is no cure. So whatever treatments we have available to us is just to survive and get through the day. And it's so common that women are kind of forced to be like, am I able to, like you said, take care of my other children or suffer? And sometimes, and financially, like the medication's not cheap either. Like it's sometimes it's literally between feeding your family or going down the path of nine months of taking medication that is ridiculously expensive, especially in like around 2013, mm. like 10 years ago, it was even like more triple expensive. the price mm. it is now. Like there's so many layers to this whole conversation. And that is literally why we need to talk about it more because when we are so in the depths of it, you feel so alone and like there's n- and so many people don't understand and when you have patient facing people that still don't know about the correct ways of treating it or even what it is or the signs like there's so many red flags i mean we can now literally hear someone talking about it and be like oh well, that's definitely hg you had it at this time whereas there is still so much education and awareness within the medical community let alone within just general like media like it's it's the conversations and you guys talking about your experiences on this podcast is so important because like I've seen in comments before, because whenever HG comes up, I'm always like, oh, I want to, I want to see what's going on. And I see people going, oh, that was me, but I never got diagnosed. And the amount of times we've had this conversation of like people 10 years down from their, like their first experience of it going, I think I had that. And it makes so much sense, but why wasn't I diagnosed? And we say this a lot, like it's supposed to be a rare disease or whatever it is, or rare illness, it's rarely diagnosed, really. It's so common, not just because we surround ourselves with it constantly, it's because it's just people are not, not recognizing these huge red flags that if they get it early, you're actually supporting someone well past that pregnancy because of the mental toll and physical toll HG has well into their motherhood journey and it affects years and years down the track if it's not something that was even recognized and acknowledged I think is the the main thing and like the bar's low (laughs) we we really don't expect much at the moment because our dream is just so people can recognize it like that's ridiculous like you know the ultimate goal of course is a cure but right now it's like okay, how do we best support someone who's suffering this? And what does that look like within our country? Because, I mean, again, like Caitlin said, we are speaking from privilege. America, it's a very different conversation. Like it's a life or death thing, really. But within our country, there's still so many different things that just are so frustrating and why it's even something that we need to continually talk about because, because it happens to women. It's, it's something that, you know, doesn't seem to be the, you know, huge focus of governments and medical and all that sort of stuff. So. And I think there is this element of you chose to go again, which is really, and I think also the thing that in some ways is good because it is a shared experience with a lot of other women, but 
like th- there's nothing more common than being pregnant. Like so many people go through it and I'm not saying everyone can or chooses to go through it, but it is such a common experience that as Jade was saying before, sometimes you think, well, why can't I do it well? Am I weak? And why can't I find this, this enjoyable thing? And it does just seem so cruel that some people can enjoy it and some people can be like us where you basically go from bed to toilet, bed to toilet, if you're lucky and you're not just in hospital the whole time. Like how can it be such a huge spectrum of the ways you experience pregnancy? Isn't it crazy that all of us don't know pregnancy that isn't HG? Like isn't that wild? Like yeah. I find that like whenever we talk to someone, it's we really want to like talk to people that have had those quote unquote normal pregnancies and then has HG because like we don't know anything different. Like that's the difference. Like it's it's like how do we we can only compare with our pregnancy experiences that we have had. And it's like comparing, you know, not as bad as mm. that one. And but it was really bad. Like it's so it's wild that that is our experiences and it's so such a common thing yet it's just not supported but I even think that this is like this is the first time that I feel almost allowed to not whinge but open up and express how truly miserable I was in all of those pregnancies I mean thank goodness when I did give birth you know well I had postnatal with one of them and actually what you were saying at the start, Yannicka, I was so depleted with iron that I had to have a blood transfusion and this is because no one was asking me if I had hyperemesis. No one was checking my levels. No one was giving me the extra care that I needed because I was suffering so much and I was so depleted. But I think the saddest part or one of the saddest parts about this is that we sit at home and we suffer because we think that we should have to put up with it. And then we get to such a low point that we drag ourselves to hospital. I mean, I drove myself with a migraine. My husband had to look after the kids and I'd walk in and they're like, oh, you poor love, all you bloody need is hydration and we'll put you on a drip. But this is what should be given to people with hyperemesis at bloody home constantly so they can actually feel relatively okay. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's when we say the bar is low, we literally mean it's it's a bag of water. Like that is how low it is. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, that is so upsetting oh. to hear it said exactly how it is. It's sterile water and sometimes they put electrolytes in it. So it's kind of fancier. And we're, we're asking to be able to have it in the comfort of our own homes or at least in a bed on the maternity ward, not in a plastic chair in emergency. Mm. So it's pretty easy to keep us happy. Like, don't say anything nasty. Like, don't be dismissive. If you can't muster the energy to say, I'm so sorry this is happening to you, silence is preferable. Turn the lights down so they're not in our eyes. Put it somewhere quiet. Don't ask us if we want anything to eat or drink because we probably don't. And if we do, we'll ask. Try and get the cannula in in the first three or four goes, like don't turn us into a human pincushion. If you need to call the anaesthetist, swallow your pride and do it. Sometimes really dehydrated people need an anaesthetist and an ultrasound to get it in. And that's not on you. That's on us. Sorry, crappy veins. And then leave us alone. And if we want to come back tomorrow for the same thing, just do it again. Like that is how low the bar is. We're not asking for 
a cure. We're not asking, I mean, like that'd be great, but we're not asking (laughs) for any level of special treatment. We're asking for like the bare minimum. And I had a really weird experience in my first pregnancy where just before I got pregnant, one of my brother's uh, had gone out for some weird dinner and he had eaten bad lamb and he got really bad food poisoning. And his friends were like, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. And then he wasn't fine. And they took him to the hospital and they were ringing my mom and they were like, oh my God, he's in hospital with food poisoning. He was there for like two days. They buffed him up. There were no, like he was given on Danzatron and fluids and electrolytes. And they were like, oh, you poor love. Did you go out for dinner? Oh, did someone force you to eat rancid meat? Oh, you poor thing. Like mm-hmm. he was cared for so much better. Whereas I would like, seven months pregnant, like drag myself into the hospital and be like, please, can someone just give me some fluids and medicine? And they'd be like, well, you chose to get pregnant. Like no one forced your brother to go out for dinner. Like no one forced (laughs) you to get pregnant. They forced him to eat that meat and then he got sick. Like that wasn't his choice to do that. This was your choice to get pregnant. Like it was just so weird that as soon as it was pregnancy, it becomes this other thing like you have to suck it up and you become a second class citizen to the baby. Like it was just this. And I, I think about it every now and then. And then a few months ago I was talking to another sufferer and she was saying, I've heard you tell this story about your brother in the food poisoning. She said, I had the same experience when she had HG. She was in the emergency department next to a girl, a teenage girl who had cannabis induced hyperemesis, which is like you, oh, yeah, and you smoke too much weed and you like, Get green out. HG based, like vomiting. vomit and you green out. Yeah. And she was like, they were so much nicer <laughs> to the teenage bot smoker than they were to the like pregnant lady in her thirties who was just like trying to grow a baby. And, you know, they were like, oh, you poor love. Did you smoke? Oh, hit the bongs too hard on the weekend. <laughs> and they were like, pregnant lady. And really out. all what we're asking doing? is that everyone is treated nicely. <laughs> Be nice to everyone. Exactly. I think on the whole conversation around, oh, you chose to be pregnant, especially when you go again, people are so judgmental. And I can't imagine like I am very much in the, I don't know if I'm ready to potentially have a third. And there's a whole lot of things around that. But the main thing in my mind is like, how do I like talk to people in my life about wanting to go again, Mm. which basically is like, why would you ever, you almost died with HG, like, but we don't choose to be sick. Like, it's not like we're going, oh, I can't wait to have HG again. It's not something that we should be blamed for. No, And it's so common to be like, oh, you're a, you know, a first time mom, you don't know what you're talking about. Second time, well, well, you you knew what you were going to get into. You can't win. There's also the other side where when people say to me, do you think you'll ever have another child? And I say, look, I, I don't think I want four children anyway, but I definitely cannot. Now that I'm out of pregnancy, I think I have perspective of what I went through and I just cannot be pregnant again. It was the first time I've ever fully understood how someone gets to the point of suicide. Cause I remember thinking if I could just, okay, maybe I don't want to be gone forever, but if someone could give me a pill where Mm. I would just go to sleep for 10 weeks and wake up in 10 weeks time, I don't care who's been upset while I've been gone. I don't care what I've missed. I need to do that because I don't know that I can endure this any longer. 
but I say to people, oh, I can't do pregnancy again. And sometimes they flip it on you and they say, oh, but it's only nine months. I reckon I was playing Russian roulette. Like who's to yeah. say, what are the chances of me getting hyperemesis again? We'll just go again. So you <laughs> flick the barrel and you're like, fuck, I've got it again. Yeah. Then you're like, what are the chances of me getting hyperemesis for the third time? And you flick the barrel again and you're like, maybe it's just my body. How come that person? And you start, don't you reckon you start getting really pissed off that Mm. Susie over there that's, you know, she's 18 weeks and she is just killing it. She's flourishing. She's happy. She's at work. She's jumping on the trampoline with her other kids. I don't know. I don't get pissed off because I have people all the time say to me, oh, I'm so sorry. I really enjoyed pregnancy. And I say, well, look, Good on you because I would never wish yeah. this on my worst Not enemy. Not while I was pregnant. I was miserable. <laughs> yeah. I hated everyone. No, I, I agree with Jade. Like I feel like you have this resentment going, why can't that be my experience? But then also I also see from sorry for your perspective going, I would never want anyone to experience this. But then it's like, but why can't I have that? Like why yeah. hasn't that been my journey? Yeah, rather than drag you to me, can you pull me <laughs> up to you and we both be fl- flourishing rather than both of and us? And I think there is also the whole other conversation of we talk to people that really struggle to get pregnant and there's that whole IVF community mm. who are incredible and then we speak to them and they're suffering through this pregnancy that they suddenly have feelings of they don't want to be pregnant. Yeah. Like that is so, mm. I'm going to swear, it's fucked up. Like it's just, it's so cruel and that's just what people are dealing with. And why should they have to then deal with being questioned and the barriers that we have to, and the hurdles we have to jump over to be diagnosed or to be treated or to be cared for and we talk about the treatment side of it but I love really talking about we should have mental health plans in place in pregnancy and you know we talk a lot about our you know postnatal mental health which is so important but the trauma you experience of relentless sickness like HG that's torture there's no hyperbole about this like it's really torture Mm. that you have to go through this for and also it may not be the whole nine months. You may experience it up to 26 weeks or 32 weeks. That doesn't mean that your experience was less than, no. you know, someone who's, you know, still vomiting while they're giving birth. Like it's it's still shit, it's still trauma, you're still taking it through. And that is there's no support mentally for that. Mm. There's no debriefing. Caitlin, can you talk us through the guilt that we carry mm. through this whole process, this journey? I do just want to just jump back really quickly, this decision to go again and like how it's luck of the draw and maybe you won't get it the next time. And I just want to put it out there, 80% recurrence rate, right? It's worse than Russian roulette. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Jade, you had no chance. Far <laughs> it's inverse Russian roulette where there's five bullets <laughs> and one hole. Yeah, a game that you would empty, not right? play. No. <laughs> you would never play it, Right. So that's the recurrence rate, 80%. And what we do see is that generally symptoms compound each time. So you're going to get worse with each subsequent pregnancy. And I think that there's not enough conversation about that because you are entitled to grow or not grow your family however you want. If you guys all want to go on and have seven more children and you come to me and you say that, I'll be like, bro, you're crazy and HG is the least of your worries. (laughs) But... Let's do it. I support you. Let's go through it. Being armed with the that knowledge of like, 
you have to just assume that it's coming. Yeah. Like if you've had it once, you have to assume that you're in the 80%. You're not in the 20%. And that has to inform every single decision mm. that you make from the moment that you decide to try to start conceiving or you find out that you've had a whoopsie baby. Every decision that you make about the support that's around you, the treatment that you want, what you're doing with your other kids, what you're saying to your partner, who you're telling, your employers, everything, every single thing has to be informed by the fact that you are going to be out of commission. Mm. Until you're proven otherwise rather than the other way around. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 100%. I think I was slightly better with Goldie than I was with Poppy. Goldie's my second and Poppy was my first. And I tricked myself I into actually. thinking that it was because my body was getting used to pregnancy. And I tried to convince myself that maybe that meant that the third when I say Goldie was better than Poppy, I 100% still had hyperemesis. It was just yes. didn't go <laughs> till birth. But I fully tricked myself and I think it was the only way that I could fathom going again. Anyway, not the case. Body did not get used to it <laughs> and I think my third was the worst of the three. So, mm. yeah. Yes, yeah. And in terms of the guilt, I think like pregnancy a textbook pregnancy, right? A quote unquote normal pregnancy is a really intense emotional time because there are just so many external factors that are like vying for your attention, right? So for the first time in your life, you are like like genuinely responsible for the life of somebody else. And we are just bombarded with images and messages about what pregnancy is meant to be be like and what you're supposed to do right and whether you're someone who has had this image in your head of what your pregnancy is going to be mm -hmm. like or you're someone who goes in flying by the seat of their pants either way you end up disappointed in a sick pregnancy because it's not what anybody's telling you it's going to be like and there's no resemblance to what your life was like before you become an invalid you become a prisoner in your own body, in your own home. You become dependent on the people around you. So I think at every step in a pregnancy, women and parents are sort of set up to fail at, under the best of circumstances. I would challenge you to find me someone who has breezed through all of the steps of conception, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and ticked every box that they wanted to hit and had a brilliant time and come out unscathed and had everything that they wanted. It's just not possible. And so anytime you add a factor in there that's detracting from the norm or from what you want, instead of looking outward and going, well, society's the problem or the medical professionals are the problem or social media is the problem, we go, I'm the problem. I am failing at this. And it becomes so much more complex if you've had fertility issues. And so you already, you've gone scorched earth on your ideas about what was coming for you or what you deserved. It becomes so much more complicated if you have other children who are sort of looking at you pleadingly with those little faces of like, why what is mommy, why won't you play with me? Why are you shipping me off all of the time? Like, we feel that guilt when we have the flu over a weekend and we can't play with them for six hours, you know, putting months and months of that together. And something I say to women, and I hope anybody who's listening to this who who is remembering these feelings or who is feeling them right now, 
the one thing that I would say to you is that if you are spending any amount of your energy on feeling guilty about your kids, particularly, or letting anybody down, your partner, your employer, your friends, your siblings, whoever it might be, you know, one thing that people will tell you is like, you're doing the most important job in the world. You're growing a little baby and that's so special. And yes, that's true, but that's really abstract. What I like to remind people when it comes to guilt is that like, if you feel guilt, if you're lying there and you're thinking, I wish I could get up and play with her. I wish I could, you know, be the mum that I want to be. The fact that you're thinking that means that you are that mum. Like you are a good mum mm. and they will forgive you or they won't remember. You know, I said this on a um, in a recording the other night actually, so I feel like I'm repeating myself, but the balance of our parenting, whether we're good parents or bad parents, is not one decision. It's not one moment in our parenting journey. We are the sum total of every decision, of every act of love, of every hard choice that we make as parents. And that includes during pregnancy. So if you said no 450 times in the space of nine months because you couldn't get off the couch and they wouldn't, you couldn't play with them, I guarantee you that you said yes 450 times in the first week that you were healthy Mm. to make up for it. So there's no, you can feel the guilt and you can acknowledge it, but don't carry it because you've made up for it. And also like, I really, really struggle with the, all of the external pressure that's put on us, you know, and I think we need to start framing HG as a disease mm. really separate from pregnancy. Absolutely. And it's a really lonely, isolating place, as you were saying before. I think you do get in a real dark headspace because you're either dealing with migraines or you're dealing with just trying to feel two seconds of not being nauseated or not vomiting or not pissing anywhere. And I remember being just like really clear this this memory of mine. I was pregnant with my second child and or it might have been my third child. Anyway, I was in bed. I had a migraine. My husband went to work. I couldn't move. I was dehydrated. I should have gone to hospital, but I couldn't feed my kid. Like I could not, I didn't know what to do. So I literally peeped over one eye. It was blurry. And I messaged my friend and I said, I really need you to come here right now. That's all I could say. Mm, And for me to say that as a mother, to say, hey, I need help was like instant guilt. Mm. I was like, I've failed already. This is failure. This is failure. Asking anyone for help. She came in, she tripped over, I think three piles of washing but she came in and just went, saw me and just went upstairs, fed the kids, cleaned the house. And it was Mm. one tiny phone call that changed everything that day. So I could actually just sleep without having to do all these things. And I think the biggest part, and we say this all the time on our podcast is, I know we always think in our heads that we can't ask for help, but so many people around us, I know we're all not fortunate, but a lot of people do have a friend or family member that can come and do something for you. The thing that's hard is it's day in, day out for nine months. But even if you can pull it here and there. Oh, totally. I'm, I'm not saying don't ask for help, but I think the thing that's so hard is often as mothers, we're told, just ask for help. And it's like, but 
you know, with HG, it could be every day and every night for nine months. Oh. Like it's so, and I had help during it. Like I had my husband around a lot and you still, you lie there in bed just thinking all the things you're missing out on. I remember sobbing to my kids just saying like, I will be back. I'm coming back. Like I think, and to my husband saying that. And you just, yeah, like I remember one night Nick was out and I, tried to put my kids to bed and my second daughter just screamed that she wanted Nick because I had been nowhere to be seen like Mm. and it is as you said you know you can say no 450 times and far out in the past five months I've made up for it but at the time it honestly feels like it's never ever gonna end. Well I was on Centrelink at this time and I couldn't afford the medication and all they would give me was four Zofran tablets. I wasn't allowed any more than that. So for me to get my kids in the car, go and get four every time I needed them. Like I needed almost four a day. I was trying to cut them in half so I could one, afford them, two, have them and not have to move out of the house. So Mm. whenever I missed a dose, it was bedridden, either have to go to hospital and get on a drip. But that ended up being cheaper at the time because that's how expensive the medication was. And so often when you do go in to get your medication, you're questioned about yep, whether you should just actually be taking that. that. And have you tried ginger oh, tablets oh, or sorry. acupressure bracelets instead? And I remember thinking, I'm here with a script. I'm about to vomit on your floor. I, I don't need this. I think we can collectively say that can we please stop suggesting those <laughs> things, particularly ginger, it's not going to help. It doesn't help. It doesn't. I'm sorry. And that is a, a avenue that sometimes does help for people. It's it's also like what ha- works for you doesn't work for the next person either. It's yeah. literally just this throw stuff at you and see what happens. But I want to go back to what you were saying, Sophie, in terms of it kind of ties in with the guilt. But I remember distinctly when my daughter would come in and ask if I could come and, you know, play with her or whatever. I said no. And then she just stopped asking. And I just, that was like the most devastating thing because I felt like I had officially failed at being her mum. And I carried that with me for a very long time. And that guilt turns into a mental health issue. Like you then carry that into everything else that you face as a mother. And it all comes back to this entire thread of like what she does to us and it's those little moments that then become sometimes very serious because we're not given the tools to cope with the mental turmoil that she takes on you because when you're in a dark bathroom vomiting blood because you've torn your esophagus your nose is bleeding you know I was scratching my skin off I was holding my ribs and I my little almost three-year-old was saying to me, mommy, I'll get you your drink. It was just like, what the fuck? Like, how am I here and why can't I just make it stop? And it was never like, it was just always, I'm, yeah, I'm the one failing. And it's just, what do you say to people like that, you know? Like, how can we continue to go on when we've just experienced something like that? And like when you are experiencing that and then, you can't ask for help because when you do from the professionals, they're pushing you back. So why would I ask for help from just everyone else? Like you were continuously gaslit to 
be told that, oh, it's, you know, it's not that bad or wait till you're over the first trimester or wait till you get to the this weird mark that they've, you know, keep pushing back and back. Or I remember with Pop when I was pregnant with Poppy because I'd had a miscarriage the first mm. time and I hadn't had any symptoms when I had that miscarriage. It was always, oh, but symptoms are a good sign that it's a healthy pregnancy. Uh. And I said, it's like when you get your period and you're relieved you're not pregnant. It's like, okay, it only needs to stick around for 0.2 of a second in the morning and then yeah. fuck off and I can use that symptom as like a green flag yeah. for the pregnancy. Like this is beyond me. You know, I, yeah. I and I did. I got to the point where I was subconsciously trying to will myself into having a miscarriage because I thought, well, clearly I'm not cut out to be a mother if I despise pregnancy this much. I like, I don't, I don't love this Mm. at all. I don't love this baby. I don't any of those things. I think that the antidote to some of these feelings for me is HE is a disease that is caused by a couple of different things. We know there's a genetic component, right? There's a beautiful gene called GDF15 that codes for your placenta and it also codes for your appetite. It interacts with another thing, a hormone, which is also confusingly called GDF15. And if you have both the gene and high levels of the hormone, you get HG. That's how you end up with it. There are potentially other things at play and the reason that we see such a spectrum of symptoms and ending points and severity and all, all of these things is because there are other things that potentially are involved. All of your other pregnancy hormones. We see women who have a history of stomach migraines or regular migraines who develop HG and we think it might be linked to migraines. We think that there's also potentially a link to people who have a history of motion sickness. You know, there are all of these other little things that are going on, but all of them are either coded into your genes, hormonal, to do with the mechanical functioning of your body. And none of them, not one single one of them, is something that you have control over. It's not something that you can turn off or on at will. It isn't because in a past life you were the leader of of an army that did a bunch of really bad things or like wrote erotic fan fiction. <laughs> oh, really weird. I, I That's what like, I'd always put it down to. This is not karma. <laughs> it's got yeah. nothing. And this is like, I cannot stress this enough and I want this on a t-shirt. And anybody who's listening, if you blank out everything else I have said in this episode and only listen to everybody else, please listen to this. It is not an indication Mm. of your abilities as a mother, as a parent. The two are not linked at all. How you handle pregnancy is not the blueprint or an indication of how you will handle parenthood. I was really bad at being pregnant. Like I sucked at being pregnant. There was nothing about it I enjoyed. I laid around literally complaining, covered in my own juices all the time. I was either like homicidal and threatening anybody within arm's reach with physical violence or suicidal. I was either in hospital or in bed. I was a shell of a person. I was nasty and looked hideous because I had the blood vessels in my face were just burst all of the time and I didn't wash my hair. Mm -hmm. I'm a pretty good mum. Like, And I wash my hair and I don't threaten physical violence on my children or my husband 
Most days. Some of the time. You know, like <laughs> they're, they're night and day. We're different people. And Jade, what you were saying before I really resonate with is like, now if you ask me if I want to go and like kick the woman who lives down the street who's having a beautiful glowing pregnancy and staging, you know, maternity shoots every other week in her front yard because she's having a beautiful pregnancy. No, I'm like, I'm really glad that someone in the world is having a really good experience. Mm -hmm. When I was pregnant, I was egging her house. Like I was not a good person. I was a different person. No, you couldn't because you couldn't couldn't stand eggs. Exactly. (laughs) I was sending my three-year-old to egg her house. Um, So to give them something to do. This will kill an hour. But you different people. But it makes sense, doesn't it? Because Think about, and I didn't know because I wasn't drinking at the time when I had my first two and then I had two kids and became a drinker, but I was like, people would be like, oh, maybe it's like having a hangover. I'm like, I don't know what a hangover feels like. Now I well and truly know what a hangover (laughs) feels like. No one in that frame of mind has any real positivity going on. When you feel foggy-headed, you feel sick to your stomach, you feel like you've got a pounding head, you have no space to look up and think, oh, good for them. Mm. It's it's not that you don't want to. Like me on a normal day, good for everyone, like good for you and good for you and, oh, I want the best for everyone. But when I am sick and I have hyperemesis, I want to bring everyone down to my level and feel the pain that I feel because especially my partner, the way he would walk in the door and he'd just flop on the couch or he'd eat food and I just looked at him out of one eye and I was like, I can't stand you (laughs) because you don't know how it feels. Okay, so let's get practical, shall we? Let's get practical. So your partner walks through the door. Friends, partners, parents, what can people actually do to help because I think we've covered that HG's shit mm. so how can we try and make it yeah let's stop whinging and let's start bit acting less shit. Yes. let's act let's act don't on this. tell them that they should be grateful I think is oh. a really big one we're not saying I think a lot of people might be thinking well you know you can complain you can whinge whatever blah blah, blah. it doesn't mean that we're not grateful that we will soon have a baby like it's it they're two very different things I say I hate pregnancy but I actually I'm very fortunate that I love birth but that's also not something that people experience too but doesn't mean that I don't hate having children like it's yeah. it's so it's such a weird conversation but it's also something that comes up a lot when people will be like oh just be grateful that you're pregnant it's sort of like saying like if you were like oh man I love laying on a beach in the south of France but boy I hate flying economy for 24 hours like it's crap to get there you would never be like oh my god you hate France oh my god you hate France I would be like boohoo get the fuck over it though I was gonna say that was a weird analogy Caitlin yeah so maybe I'm still trying to get my head around it journey stay with me hate the journey love the (laughs) destination right like and people no one would conflate the two people would be like well yeah but like you have to like you live in Australia you have to get on the flight like to get there you know you have to be pregnant so I would say like don't ask her what she needs don't be like can is there anything I can do to help you know what do you need just do some things just order groceries to Mm. her house if you know her partner 
contact them and say, hey, can I come and take the kids out for six hours on Saturday so that you can do something else? Send Uber Eats vouchers, send a cleaner, like think about, especially if you're a mum or if you're close enough to her that you know, like roughly what her day-to-day responsibilities are, make a list of them, work out which one she's probably not doing and which one's you either you could do or the ones that are causing her the most stress. So like if you have a friend whose house is always immaculate because for her mental health, she needs her house to be clean all the time. And you know, that's not happening. Then that's a really easy, like, okay, let's get her house clean or let's change her sheets. Let's clean her toilet for her. So she doesn't have to do these things. So like the practical things that she doesn't have the ability to do, but that are probably causing her stress, I think would be a big one. Get her scripts and take them to the chemist and do that whole circus for her. Because not only is it like physically draining to like get up and get out of the house and go and fill the scripts. Sophie, as you mentioned before, a lot of the time there's like an interrogation that's going along with getting your scripts filled and having to justify while you're on all of these medications, particularly if you look visibly pregnant, you know, in the early days, you can kind of say like, no, I'm not pregnant. I'm taking the rest of it because I have insomnia, you know, but as you get more and more visibly pregnant, people start to say more and like, let's just take her out of the equation. If she has older kids doing stuff with them, just don't like wait around to be asked. I think. Do you know what I would love? I would have loved if you have younger ones for someone to pre-make little snacks and have them in the fridge in like if they're old enough, they can just open the fridge themselves and it's there like yogurts, cheeses, crackers, whatever, and then have a few sandwiches where they can do it if you can't get to the fridge. Mm. Don't come over and cook meals at my house because I can't smell it, even if it's two stories. Mm. I can't smell it. My pantry I couldn't even Mm, smell. So if you could bring over something for my family and then like if someone could look at you when they walk in and go, realistically, she probably wants hydrolyte, maybe a lemonade that's flat and maybe some crackers sitting there and refresh the vomit bowl. Like that's all I would expect. And I would be the happiest woman on the planet just to have, and that that's what, like, that's how sad, I know I keep saying sad, but that's how, that's the expectations the of a woman with mm. hyperemesis. Mm. I think also offering to take her to appointments, especially if they need fluids, driving is sometimes just something that cannot be done and being, and also be ready to stop over. <laughs> they need to spew when they're driving as well. So I think the offering that is a really valuable thing, especially if the partner's working and can't make those appointments too. I think also not just within pregnancy, but then start thinking about how you can support her with her recovery postpartum. And it's something that we don't talk about enough in the community. Uh, We're trying to dispel that. But just because the symptoms end once that placenta is out, it doesn't mean that you haven't just suffered potentially nine months of depletion, gone into birth at negative 1,000, and then come out of that going, I feel amazing. This adrenaline. Like I actually remember my midwife saying, oh, you're not gray anymore. Like it was like a Mm. cloud lifting and it felt I'm alive. And I know Sophie going out for you and, you know, you talking about that was like, that was my experience with my first. I was like, I need to get out of here. Like I've been cooped up. This is my happiness. 
And then with my second, I actually did the reverse and did the whole confinement and things like that. But I think it's actually saying, well, don't expect her to just be like instantly okay. And I think she'll definitely feel like she's okay. Like at some point she'll be like, I'm great. This is amazing. And then more often than not, we find within, I mean, it's like between six weeks to six months time down the track, postnatal depletion kicks in more often than not for HG survivors. And it is devastating. It can be a mental health depletion. It can be a physical depletion. It can be both. And then we're left with the pieces because everyone's like, oh, you're fine now. You're not vomiting. You're not, you know, it's all good. You're all fine. And we're left going, so why do I feel absolutely decimated? Like, why am I just not able to function? And it's because you've literally gone into this huge marathon of birth, absolutely not prepared. Like you, most often you're anemic, like you may get a blood transfusion, like you may need that later on as well. Like there's so many things that can lead into that depletion happening. And there's only so much you can continue going on with that adrenaline from birth and having a newborn and, and then sleep deprivation. And it's, there's so many things. I feel like that was me in the early days and it's catching yeah. up to me now is I made up for nine months in like yeah. no time at all. And I don't regret it at all because I actually loved my postpartum. Yeah. I did so much. I had so much fun. I felt like me again, but I feel like now that I'm five months down the track, I'm like, yeah. Let's you're really sleep deprived and just because you're feeling better than you were when you were yeah. pregnant doesn't mean that we have to do all the things all the time. So now I'm just like, okay, you're still like I'm waking up so many times a night. I'm like, okay, we don't have to yet yeah, do it all now. We can just have a breather. But yeah, there was that period afterwards where I was like, oh my God, I'm back <laughs> yeah. and I am ready to take on the world. And you have every right to feel like that. But also it can happen to you later down the track or I was going to say like you, Jade, it can happen almost immediately that we don't have that. We're not saying that you had this, but a lot of people say they don't have connections with their baby because of what they've experienced. And that's that's really hard. But I think that that hardest part is because no one tells you that that can be a reason. Yes. No one tells you that there is a connection there. So I actually had hyperemesis, then a blood, blood transfusion. Then I was white as a ghost still. They sent me home. And funnily enough, and I'm not blaming the people that were caring for me at the time, they were caring for me a week before birth. Now, I didn't need anyone to care for me a week before birth. When I got home, everyone left because apparently yeah. I don't have hyperemesis anymore and I'm fine. So yeah. I sat in that bed white as a ghost and I've got, I've got a photo still, white, oh, white, white, black under my eyes, holding a baby I had no connection to and thinking all I had was guilt. On top of that, mm. I told my husband, the reason we can have a third child is that I'll do it all when I get home. So I had guilt on top of guilt. And then I just sat there going, I, I can't move. I can't feed myself. I can't feed my kids. But I've just spent nine months doing nothing. Yeah. I have no choice now but to push time. on and make this work. And it turned into the most horrific postnatal yeah. depression 
And still to this day, I'm dealing with bouts of depression. And I've got to tell you, it's just, it's the scariest fucking thing because no one sees it. You can feel it in here. You're not throwing up physically anymore, but inside you are scared to death. You are frightened. You're alone. And a lot of people can't articulate that. And that's why we have people like ourselves that bring this discussion out because hopefully their partners can listen to this and kind of understand that it's not one woman making it up. It's not someone saying, oh, like, I just feel like we just want people to understand how severe it can be and how far it can go beyond pregnancy. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Because it's so serious. Yeah. Like it's, it's so serious and it, it's dangerous to say that it finishes when you give birth. It's just, it's just so dangerous because the PTSD for one is horrific and it presents itself just out of nowhere. Like suddenly you might, your child's vomiting and you're like, whoa, I can't deal with this. Or you have gastro and you're in a ball crying going, I can't believe I'm experiencing this again. Like that's so ridiculous that it can continue so far into life. And we're told, oh, but you don't have it anymore. Like it's, it's just dangerous to our mental health and our physical health that we don't prepare for our postpartum as a HG survivor, because it's a different conversation about how to care for your postpartum after you've experienced it. I'm revved up now. I feel like we know need to like get some signs out and go to New York and just petition <laughs> this the shit out of it. This is literally what we do. Like. Yes, I'm coming to the next one. But so how do you prepare for your postpartum when you can, like there's no extra reserve to plan for anything? I think it's just, I think the first step is just knowing that it's a thing, right? Like in my first pregnancy, I had a very similar experience, Jade, where I had to have a transfusion after uh, my first birth because my iron stores were non-existent and I just blacked out and they couldn't work. It was so weird because it was the same care team at the same hospital who had been telling me for months that I needed to be taking an iron supplement. And then when I couldn't get out of bed after birth and blacked out in the shower, they were all like, well, I wonder what this could be. And it was, you know, 12 hours of people feeling around inside my uterus for retained placenta and testing me for all manner of infections and pumping me full of antibiotics, which I didn't need before someone went, oh. And nothing absorbs quite as well as an oral iron supplement yes. in a woman who's got HG. I just stopped taking it as well. Like I just was like, well, you oh, can't, no, it's, impossible it's this big, to. it makes me feel even worse. And my constant patient gets even worse than the Zofran. So yeah, transfusion after birth, which really affected, you know, skin to skin. And I don't remember the first, you know, 12, 18, 24 hours of my daughter's life because I was just not present. And I just, I think something that as a community, the HG, HG sufferers and survivors do that is a disservice is that we treat birth as the finish line because we spend so much time and we have to do it, right? Every single day, you're a step closer to giving birth and then you will feel better, right? And I think that's important, but I think we also have to reframe it as it is a finishing line of one thing, but it's very much the starting line of something else. And if you, you know, you've had a traumatic pregnancy and then what we're starting to see is new research coming out linking HG to birth trauma and being more likely to have traumatic birth, to have a birth full of interventions. 
and then having to carry that then into postpartum. If you're doing that, if you're going into postpartum without an understanding that even if you've done no prep, even if you don't know what you want your postpartum to look like, even if you don't have a freezer full of food or you haven't articulated to the people around you what you need out of your postpartum, as long as day one of postpartum you go, okay, and now we're starting the next thing and let's do it slow and steady. And that mindset that you have in HG that is let's take it a day at a time, let's see how we feel today and then make a decision based on that about what we do. I think that's a really good mindset. And in HG, that feels like a really negative mindset, like, oh, a day at a time, like I just have to survive today or I'm too sick to do anything today or today was a good day so maybe I could get up and sit on the couch. It can be a positive thing in postpartum, you know, to go, I just have to spend today with my baby. What do I feel like doing today? Do I feel like spending the whole day in bed doing skin to skin and working on feeding and learning my baby's sleepy cues or like smelling their toes? Or do I feel like what I need today is to get out of the house and go for a walk or go to my favorite cafe that I haven't been able to go to for nine months because I've been too sick or get on the floor and play with my other kids? Like see what you feel up to on that day. And also I think look at who you were before you had a baby and the things that you enjoyed. Right. And what I did in my first postpartum was like, now I've seen all the mums in their active wear down at Cronulla. They've got a coffee, they're walking, they're pushing their baby. They're like in the sun with their mother's groups, walking along the beach, having a great time. That's what I'm going to do. I have never walked anywhere in my life ever had never was not a walker was not an active wear girly you know if I was down on Cronulla Beach like I was like throwing myself around like a land mermaid not being like aesthetic at all so I don't know where I got in my head that like now I'm gonna be like puffer jacket mum walking along the beach with my baby and so I did that a couple of times and then I was like wow that's I feel terrible I didn't have any iron a couple of weeks ago and now I'm like trying to power walk for Australia. So I think if you were someone whose mental health and happiness and social life and and battery and cup and all of those things were filled by being out of the house, seeing friends, eating out, going to cafes, doing all those things, do that at 5% for a month and then do it at 10%. For the next month and kind of work up to it. If you're someone whose cup has always been filled by sitting on the couch with maybe your nearest and dearest, watching a movie, doom scrolling, reading a book, taking a nap on a Sunday afternoon, if that's what fills your cup, then do that. Do it at 5%. Do it at 10%. You know, work up to it. Don't go like bang straight into life again because I love that. You will, you will crash. Like you just will because pregnancy the best case scenario pregnancies are so taxing. Like they're so taxing on our bodies. I hate she pregnancy. So what they say is that for every month of a normal pregnancy, you need the same amount of months for recovery, right? So nine months in, nine months out. We've all heard that. A HG pregnancy, for every one month you suffer from HG, you need two to three months of recovery. So if you suffer HG for nine months of your pregnancy, all of us, times that by three, That's 27 months of recovery. 
that you need. Shit, I'm still recovering. I was going to say, and I've done that three times in five years. So how long do I? If I can share how I plan my postpartums very differently from my first, I learned from my first because I crashed and burned in my first postpartum. And I was like, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to be, you know, step ahead. And for me, I was planning a home birth and I, that was my, like, I can't wait. Like I just have to get there. I was really excited about that. And that was my, not my finishing line, but it was my goal and my like light at the end of the tunnel. But then I also put into place, okay, we don't have family around us that can help us. So I'm going to hire a postpartum doula and add that to our gift registry and people are going to fund that for us and she's going to set up a meal train and I'm not going to deal with any of that stuff. And I was so glad that I did that because she was so integral to my healing because I was able to just not worry. I mean, you know, we also increased daycare. Like we were, you know, there's lots of financial privilege in that, but we had to because I knew that I couldn't do certain things. And I really spoke to everyone in our life going, this is just the beginning of my journey of like healing from HG. I really pushed that. I shoved it down their throat. It's going, just because I'm not sick anymore doesn't mean I'm not trying to heal from it. And they got it because I just talked about it constantly. And then I was given the space to then not worry about the everyday stuff, but actually just focus on my my mental health that was left over from that. And it was really confronting. It still is. And I feel like there's still so much to unpack, but I was given that, which I'd never got with my first. And I think if you can take care of the practical things of life that you probably should also have when you're suffering from HD as well, but you know, you will also have a newborn. So I feel like if you can add that postpartum doula to your gift registry, if that's something that really is valuable to you or a meal train or something that helps your family with that stuff, do it. And then you can pick up the pieces with everything else because there is a lot. The other night we interviewed someone on our pod who had a really amazing postpartum plan that was like light bulbs for both of us. We were like, oh my God, you're amazing. Tell us now. She was yes. the one shader. Sign up to our, no. Um, (laughs) So she said that for her, her postpartum planning, her mental health had struggled so much during HG that she went to a really bad, really, really bad places. And what she knew was that 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 meant that she was then more likely to develop postpartum mental health complications as well. And she wanted to try and safeguard against that. And so what she did was that she wrote down what it looks like when she isn't in a good place, what the signs and red flags are in her that she's withdrawing, that she's, you know, not sleeping or snapping. You know, she didn't go into specifics, but what it looks like when her mood is turning for the worst and then what gets her out of that in an immediate sense and then what it looks like when those things aren't working and more serious intervention is required. And she gave those things to her her husband and two or three really close friends to be like, if you see me doing X, Y, Z, or if I say ABC to you, big warning sign, that's a big red flag that I'm not coping, I'm not doing okay, and here's a list of things to try to get me out of that, and this is what to do if you think I actually need more help. It's almost like a permission slip or something. It's fantastic. Yeah. Like, yeah. Because I think, you know, what we are seeing 
is, you know, the charity, we've done some research with a mental health, perinatal mental health organization called COPE. And the research is basically if in the normal quote unquote population, PND affects one in four, so postnatal depression affects one in four women, postnatal anxiety is more like one in 10, it's double that in the HD community at a minimum. So we are more depressed, we're more anxious, we're, and we are more vulnerable and less likely to ask for help because as you both, all three of you have touched on, we've been asking for help for nine months. We don't want to ask for help anymore. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but that's yeah. when we we still do really need it. My husband is like my little red flag holder. He can sense whenever I am going down a little bit of a rabbit hole. Sophie also can sort of flag it as well. But what we've been doing is I've been writing a diary when I'm in the thick of it. And it's also, I put it on the podcast as well, but it's a little diary that has pinpoints when I'm in a low point to know and understand what those exact things are that bring me back up. So it's a letter to myself when I'm not feeling myself to say, Jade, I know you've been here before. I get goosebumps because it's just yeah, so, I got goosebumps. Like, but it, it is what it is. And I say, Jade, you've been here before and I know that you're in a lot of pain, but this is the last thing that you want to do right now, but you have to get up and you have to go for a walk. I want you to drink two litres of, of water. I I need you to have a healthy meal. I need you to put the phone down, put out of office on all your emails. These are the simple things that you sort of think aren't going to change, you know, your mental health. But I've got to tell you, I have been through this time and time and time again and having this little cheat sheet almost has mm. has been saving my life and from like my little community of people going oh hang on I can sense that she's off to me then having this little book going this is what you need to do from me like you know you cannot believe some people you don't believe when you're going through the darkness and you're like oh I just can't believe it because I'm too anxious but when you're sitting there going hang on I've actually said and read that. I've mm. said this before. I have got to try it. It, it removes and as and much pulls. as those things are simple, they're the things that when you are so deep and dark in it, they you can't so even hard. come up with those no, simple you can't. strategies. You just burnt out. And I guess that's why in all of these things, it's best to not ask what is needed and to like see a feel. Mm. What is it? See a need, feel a need, rather than yeah, yeah. you know. And one more on practical tips is, so if there's someone who has had HG, you're saying 80% chance that they're going to have it again if they have another bub. How can we mentally and physically get ourselves ready for another HG pregnancy? I think for me, I was very lucky that I've had two pregnancies that are really good examples of like completely uncontrolled, wild west, no one had any idea what was going on treatment-wise pregnancy. And then one post starting the charity, post being in this work and knowing what I needed to do, here's my little experiment baby of like, can we do it better? Don't tell him I called him an experiment baby. He's he's already the youngest child. He won't. You kind of wanted the child too. Yeah, it's fine. He's all right. So... I think for me, physically, my second pregnancy, my symptoms were worse. I had additional complications, you know, like I had a pick line put in, which is like a, a permanent cannula in my arm. 
permanent port so that I wouldn't be have to be cannulated every time I went to hospital because I was going in three times a week to get fluids, had a pick line in that left me with a blood clot. So then I'm on blood thinners and then they thought I had a clot in my lung and I had to have a whole thing. So like physically heaps worse. It was 2020, middle of COVID. So I'm doing it all alone because no one can come near me. There were so many reasons why that pregnancy should have just been an absolute off its tits disaster. But it wasn't for a couple of reasons. One was that as soon as I got pregnant, I went to my GP. As soon as I found out, I wasn't even four weeks yet. And I, my GP knew me. She knew about the charity. I had like bombarded her with all of our stuff. And I had a plan. No. Yeah. No. Me? Shameless self-promotion. Never. <laughs> and so I knew what I needed to do medication wise. And I had a plan for this is what we're starting with. This is the point where we will escalate to the next stage of medication. And this is when we'll go to hospital, all of these things. And one of the really big things about HG treatment that actually becomes a benefit in subsequent pregnancies is that the earlier you start treating, as in if you can start treating before you have symptoms, in that sweet spot week where you know you're pregnant, but it hasn't kicked in yet, if you get that, if you can start the first line of medication in that week or in that time, you have a much better chance of being able to control the severity and the duration of your symptoms. That is the only thing that you have. And you don't get that in first pregnancies because you have no idea what's coming down the line. The kind of trajectory that I often see in first time pregnancies is that People get sick, symptoms, nausea usually starts between four and five weeks, vomiting kicks in by six weeks. People usually try to seek help around eight or nine weeks. So they've been sick for a month at this stage, but it's still very early in the pregnancy. So they're going to their GP or maybe they're going to ED in the sort of eight or nine week kind of patch. If they're lucky, they're getting treatment then. If they're not, they're being dismissed. And then people then don't seek help and then trudge along and get to the end of the first trimester because that's what everybody's doing. Everyone's going to just get to the end of the first trimester and you'll be fine. Yeah. yeah, So then we tick over into 15, 16 weeks and that's when people are really crashing because 16 weeks, that's four months, right? And you've told yourself 12 weeks, 12 weeks, 12 weeks. So there's this huge drop-off that happens at 16 weeks where you've been sick, you are like way beyond the point of being dehydrated, you are malnourished. And so what starts happening in uncontrolled HG pregnancies is you're not just dealing with the symptoms of HG, you're dealing with the symptoms of dehydration, chronic dehydration. And what are the symptoms of chronic dehydration? Vomiting, nausea. So you get stuck in this vicious cycle of, is it actually your HG that's making you sick? Or is it the fact that everybody fucking ignored your HG and now you are dehydrated to the point where a hydrolate or a Powerade or one bag of fluids isn't going to reverse it. You're malnourished. You're eating into your fat stores, so you're in ketosis, so which also makes you nauseous and vomit. So it's just this, you then get in this perfect storm and there's no hope of getting out of it. And that's why we see HG being so protracted in a lot of cases because it's just it's just unmanaged. So if you're four weeks pregnant and you start medication before you even feel nauseous, it means that when the nausea does start, it's not going to be as severe. It's still going to be there. We can't do anything about that. But 
you're going to get a handle on it and you're going to be able to keep it under control so that it isn't impacting your ability to eat and drink as significantly. When vomiting starts, you're already at a place where you're taking medication. So the vomiting isn't so severe. You also know, okay, the vomiting started. Now is the time where we're going to maybe up our medication. It's we're also going to start going in for mm. IV fluids because dehydration is going to be that much more severe and happen that much more quickly once you start vomiting. So that means that you've got this really solid treatment plan and you're getting significant intervention to like at least reverse dehydration within the first 48 hours, if not completely stop it in its tracks, which means that you're not dealing with that spiral of symptoms. So you may still be sick for the whole time and you may still be miserable and like have all of these awful things. Like there's a baseline of terrible with HG that we can't do anything about, but all of those things that are making it worse, you've got a handle on. So physically, you feel like you have some control. And I also felt in my second pregnancy that having that physical control mentally made it better because I also then didn't have people continually changing the goalposts on me. So first pregnancy, I'm sure you guys heard it all as well. This will end at 12 weeks. Oh, it's 16. This is definitely going to end at 18 weeks. 26 weeks, <laughs> this is going to be over. 34 <laughs> weeks, yeah. 49 weeks, you will not be pregnant. Like, <laughs> and so you kind of you get your hopes up and then your hopes are crushed. And then you get them up again and then you're crushed again. And you're just being repeatedly disappointed over and over and over again. And mentally, that's devastating. And so in a second pregnancy, particularly if in your first pregnancy, you've had it for the whole time, like I just was like, don't tell me it's going to end because if it ends, that'll be a pleasant surprise, but I don't want to think about yeah. it yeah. because to me, it's going to end when he's born. That's the end of it. That's all I'm interested in. So it's a very, subsequent pregnancies are difficult for so many reasons. You probably, your symptoms are probably worse. You've got other children you need to think about. You've got all of this trauma probably if you're like any of us unresolved from the first baby because you probably didn't do what you should have done and gone to therapy because you're a busy mum. So you're carrying that first or second yeah, or whatever it is, pregnancy, all that trauma into the next one. There's so many reasons why it needs to be hard, but also you have control. You know what's going to happen. You can plan, you can ask for help, you can do better because your first pregnancy, you had no hope. You couldn't have done those things. You're blindsided. Exactly. Yeah. And in the second one, it's not going to be like that. So make a plan and stick to it as best you can. If you think you have PTSD, you probably have it. One thing that Caitlin and I talk about is that I definitely have severe PTSD from it and I didn't address it between the two pregnancies. If I could go back in time, I would definitely get therapy because the mental load of what trauma does to you is very extreme and it doesn't present itself until maybe you are, are pregnant with HG and it's like it feels like a very heavy weight. I really do want to also acknowledge those that re that want to grow their families but can't because it's just something they can't fathom doing because of HG. HG took that that option away from them and that's devastating for so many. And I think I really felt like I couldn't go again mentally 
I knew that like I knew I had this amazing strength of I know what I can do better to manage it but mentally it took yeah close to two years to try and get over that hurdle and I probably should have done therapy in between that to prepare myself for what was to come because you can prepare all you want expect the worst hope for the best and it can still just completely knock you over and you just go what the hell like how is this worse or whatever it is so mentally preparing yourself for it if you know that you want to go again you have every right to do it so if that's what you want to do go for it just make sure that you have those tools in place physically like Caitlin just explained but also mentally so that you have at least your best foot forward because it doesn't mean it's going to be not a shit experience because I hate to be the bearer of bad news but it's going to be horrible Mm. because that's what HG does. Imagine years down the track if we had years down the track hyperemesis doulas. Oh my god. I want to be one. Yes. How good would it be? That's what I, I feel like. That's, like that's where my we're next aiming to calling. be. Yeah. yeah. So one thing, if you are thinking about seeking mental health support, which I just think everybody should absolutely do, because you know, in general, everybody should be in therapy. But HG is just such a. It's so complicated, and even if you have a really like the the sufferer that we spoke to the other night that had the amazing postpartum list for her mental health she had what I would say is like the unicorn of HG pregnancies like she was so lucky she lives in a remote town in East Arnhem Land and she just happened to present at hospital at six weeks pregnant and be treated by the one obstetrician in the town who was also pregnant and had HG and was a few weeks ahead of her so they went through this pregnancy together the obstetrician knew how to take care of her. Not once did she have to fight for anything. Like she had this amazing, beautiful pregnancy and she still ended up with perinatal anxiety, perinatal depression, PTSD, because that is just the nature of the beast. That is just how terrible this condition is, how isolating it is. So therapy and seeing someone to kind of just unpack it, even if that's all you do, just sit in a room and talk about it. Like this feels like therapy to me. I love talking to HG sufferers. Yeah, because is literally therapy. <laughs> you know, people do, you know, have these these moments of like, oh my God, finally I can talk about it. And it feels so good. And maybe that's all you need, or maybe you need something more intensive. But what I hopefully what the charity will work towards is is a course for mental health care providers. That's what we're trying to work on to become HG aware so that we can say these are the perinatal mental health specialists who know what HG is. At the moment, that doesn't exist necessarily. If you are looking for a healthcare provider, look for someone who is birth trauma aware. So looking Mm. on like the COPE website or going to the Australian Birth Trauma Association, trying to find someone who's birth trauma aware because the the PTSD that people get from birth trauma is very similar in nature to the kind of PTSD that we see in HG sufferers. And it's not exactly the same. And there are still not a lot of birth trauma aware practitioners out there, but it's a hell of a lot better than sort of just like rolling the dice and hoping that you're going to find someone who's going to be sympathetic to these things. And I think if someone can look at at birth and go, yeah, I can see how you can be traumatized from that then that's a few steps down the road on them also being able to go, oh, yeah, I can see how pregnancy can be traumatizing as well. So that's just my sort of word to the wise on if you're looking for a provider. Because, you know, I'm sure all of us here know trying to find a psychologist 
or any kind of healthcare specialist, but trying to find a psychologist who, you know, is you're going to vibe with is so hard. And sometimes you just feel like you're going mad, like looking for the right person and you just Google and how am I going to know if I like them and feel comfortable bearing my soul to them? That is a, is a good way to kind of know that you're maybe in the clear with them, at least on the HG thing. And as I think Sophie's mentioned before on our podcast episodes, if you, I don't think it's harmful to actually book in a therapy session with a psychologist as soon as you fall pregnant and you can cancel that at any time after birth. If you are on that list and you get to a point where you're like, actually, I feel quite okay. I don't need it, but at least you're on there for nine months. And if anything goes wrong, you've got that option. Mm-hmm. I might have said that. Did I do that? No, no you didn't. <laughs> no, that's okay. But you okay. can do it now. I think also I one of the goals is that we want people to not have had to experience HG to find empathy and care for the sufferers that they face. So a lot of the times when we hear someone's had incredible care and we immediately go, did they suffer mm-hmm. HG by any chance? And Honestly, isn't it? It's like 90, 95% of the did. time yeah. they mm-hmm. have. And I just can't believe that we still, like someone has to experience it to take it seriously and treat it correctly. Like that is, that's just not okay. And I think that's the goal of the charity and what we're trying to do with education around it and hopefully talking to hospitals and care teams and midwives and doulas and everyone and trying to educate everyone on what it is so that you don't have to know someone who's had it. You've just been educated and know about it anyway, because that's the goal really right now. We we obviously want to cure and that hopefully will be in the future. But right now it's like the bare minimum of just care. And I think I just, it's just wild to me that more often than not, whenever someone gets amazing care, it's because that person has had some direct contact with HG and that's just not okay. Well, an absolute massive thank you to you both for the work that you're doing for the podcast that you are having and the awareness that you were raising. And we feel so humbled to have had you on today to talk about such an important topic that Sophie and I obviously have been through and yourselves and uh, damn well a lot of other people absolutely thank you no, so thank much you for so having much, us guys. it's been like it feels wrong saying it's been a pleasure but it really has been so thank you yeah no, thank you so much thank you thanks for listening to this episode of beyond the bump if you enjoyed it please subscribe and give us a review if you didn't good on you you can also follow us on instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes we'll see you next week Bye-bye.